we are talking about being unleavened today. And it's a continuation of this whole idea of uh, Gilgal and authentic sons and cleaving the heavens open. So uh, if you want to find out more about what I mean, you'll have to go and uh, listen to the tapes. Someone was telling me that, man, uh, sometimes we are Zion people, sometimes we are Gilgal people, sometimes we are this people and that people. And can get quite confusing, I agree. So let's leave those terms out for the present. Let me start by saying this in introduction, that guys, authentic sons, and we said our theme that the Lord has given us for 2010, which has already started, is open heavens, authentic sons. Open heavens, authentic sons. And the premise that we've discussed thus far, thanks Heidi, is this, that authentic sons have the ability to cleave heavens open. Authentic sons have the ability to cleave heavens open. Not to part heavens, to cleave it open. To literally tear it apart. And where do we get this? We get this from Matthew 3, where an authentic son, the authentic son, the Christ, steps out of the water. And when he steps out of the water, the Bible says that the heavens were torn open. And from the heavens came a voice which said, this is my son in whom I delight and listen to him. And the whole intent of what we're trying to shape before we enter 2010 is that we want to be authentic sons who have the ability to cleave the heavens open so that we can become oracles of God where God will say, listen to these people. They've got what I want to release on earth. Listen to them. Because they have become authentic sons. Because they have separated the waters and the separation of waters we said was an aligning with the purposes of God and a a setting aside that which is not of God. We talked about that. That's what we are called to be through this year and into 2010. And I wouldn't be surprised, as I said, if Eddie talked about this at the conference if he's coming next year. That authentic sons have the ability to cleave the heavens open. When the heavens are cleaved open because of the way these sons are growing up and behaving, what will happen is God will begin to use them as oracles of God on earth. And once he begins to use us as oracles of God on earth, here's what will happen. There will be tremendous favor. There will be tremendous understanding of revelation. It's one thing to see revelation. It's another thing to understand and demonstrate it. It is not the truth that sets you free. It's the knowledge of the truth that sets you free, guys. You'll hear, hear this word bandied about nowadays in Christian circles. Open heaven, open heaven, open heaven. They'll even locate places where there are open heavens. That's an Old Testament model. You do not look into the New Testament through the lenses of the Old Testament. You stand in the New Testament, wear lenses of the New Testament and look at the Old Testament. You cannot take locations and make them open heavens. This is unscriptural. It's wrong. And I'm coming out strong against it because it is, it, it, it is, it is substance-less but it's being spoken about like like nobody's business. It excites people, but it is not true. An open heaven is when God's favor is upon you because you have begun to walk like an authentic son. If I don't walk as an authentic son, I can use those two words, open heaven, in my talking as much as I want, and it doesn't mean zip gotta understand this 
We are not here to tickle ears, guys. We are not tickling ears here. Authentic sons cleave open the heavens and then they begin to walk under the scepter of the Lion of Judah. We talked about that when we talked about the book of Esther and we said uh, King Xerxes held out his scepter in favor and welcome to um, Esther and she came forth. And uh, it's the same way with us. When we as authentic sons begin to walk like authentic sons, the heavens cleave open and you begin to walk under the scepter of the Lion of Judah in favor, in his delight, in his authority, and in his understanding. Do you want to see who an authentic son is? Look at Jesus. He walked in God's favor. He walked in his delight. He said, this is my son in whom I am delighted. He walked as an oracle of God on earth because God, the Father said, listen to him. He walked in understanding. That starts right off in Luke one fifty-two. The boy grew up in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. And he walks in authority. He knew his authority. Jesus, this is what authentic sons look like. When a church becomes this, can you imagine the oracle of God on earth suddenly? Even it's a, if, it's, if it's half this crowd, you become an oracle of God on earth. You begin to speak the things of God on earth. And it doesn't matter if you don't have a wide platform. Because when words are spoken, they go forth and accomplish what they've been sent out for. This is how it works, guys. This is how it works. Like I said, once we become oracles of God, it's not just a message, guys. It's, it's not just a message of kingdom that we speak. We, we become the message. Everything we speak, we already are. We become the message. The messenger becomes the message. Imagine that. The messenger becomes the message. That's what happens. There were so many times when Jesus didn't speak a word, and yet circumstances around him would change. The messenger becomes the message. And the message of the kingdom, and we know what the kingdom is. The kingdom is God's, Jesus Christ's reign on earth. That's the kingdom. The message of Jesus Christ's reign on earth is unleavened. Is unleavened. Is unleavened. The message of the kingdom is unleavened. What I mean by that is it's free of wickedness. It's free of malice. Instead, it's full of sincerity and truth. So on one hand, the message of the kingdom is free of malice and wickedness. On the other hand, the message of the kingdom is full of sincerity and truth. It's free of rules, but it's full of principles. Isn't that awesome? It's free of rules, but it's full of principles. I like what Paul says. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. It's free of rules, but full of principles. It's free of coercion, or forcing somebody, or trying to make something happen. It's free of coercion, like uh, Marcus was saying, it's free of having to strive. It's free of coercion, but it's full of yieldedness and trust. Full of yieldedness and trust. Free of coercion, C-O-E-R-C-I-O-N, and yet full of yielded trust. free of condemnation and full of love. Free of condemnation, full of love. 
free of condemnation, full of love. Guys, this is the unleavened message of the kingdom. And when I say unleavened, we'll talk about what unleavened means a little later. But it's unleavened, meaning nothing has been added that is not of God. If this is, is, if this is the unleavened message of the kingdom, here's my question to you. Is this your life as the messenger? Because if this is the message of the kingdom, then the life of the messenger has to be unleavened too. Do you understand why it's important to grasp the whole principle of being unleavened? If the message is unleavened, the messenger has to be unleavened. Vital. My profession should match my lifestyle. My lifestyle should match my profession. I know we talked about this before. You heard messages on this before, but this is a little different. But I just want us to understand why we are talking about this. And uh, to to uh, elaborate on this, we'll take 1 Corinthians 5 uh, as a test case where Paul calls individuals and the corporate body back to being unleavened. And uh, we'll draw out principles from 1 Corinthians 5 for this house. 1 Corinthians 5. I'm going to read the whole thing. I'm reading from the NIV. Um, um, the NIV is not necessarily always the accurate version, nor is the KJV, by the way. But we'll do with what we have right now. 1 Corinthians 5. Okay, here goes. This is a test case that explains the principles of being unleavened. Paul talks about it. It is actually, chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among the pagans. A man has his father's wife and you are proud? Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. And you thought Sue invented that line. Even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. And I have already passed judgment on the ones who did this, just as I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed, and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore let us keep the festival not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. I have written you in my letters not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of the world who are immoral or greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing you that you may, that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy or idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. Strong, eh? Okay, so uh, talking about church and sin, guys. Whenever there is a gap or a discrepancy between uh, the profession of a church 
and the lifestyle of a church, it requires confrontation um, and it requires a reconciliation of sin. We talked about reconciliation last time. Whenever there's a gap between what the church professes and the lifestyle of the church, and we're talking about a people now, and a people is made up of individuals, parts. Whenever there is a gap between what a church professes are its values, and uh, uh, it, it is it is doesn't match up with the lifestyle of individuals that make up the church, then it needs to be confronted, and it needs to be reconciled. So my question to you is, does that mean if there's a sin in my life, you have to confront it, or how does it work? What what sins does a church deal with? I mean, uh, because if 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 it were to become the rule or the principle that uh, if there is any sin in anyone's life in the church, confront it. Then all we would do every Sunday at least is to confront sin. So where is where, where is the line? Where is the logic in this? How, what what do you think? I mean, uh, does the church monitor everyone's sins now? And who is the church? Is it the pastor? Is it a group of people who are elders who go around to each house looking for sins? How does it work? Do we monitor each other's sins? Or how, how, how does the church deal with it? Causes someone to stumble? All of the above? Anyone else? Pardon? At the appropriate time? I'd like to use a word um, that best explains it. When there is contaminating sin in the church, when there is contaminating sin in the church, then the church must deal with it. And by contaminating sin... I mean sin that infects or spreads in the body. Where one individual sin now begins to affect the body. When there is contaminating sin in the church, it will need to be dealt with. A contaminating sin that we see in the Bible, for example, in Revelations 2.20, um, Jesus tells the church in Thyatira, I'm not too sure, it says, uh, I'm sad that you have tolerated Jezebel, who is now beginning to spread sexual immorality and idolatry in your midst. So one of the contaminating sins that a church would have to deal with is false doctrine. False doctrine. Another contaminating sin is surprisingly greed. 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 For instance, what if I were to uh, engage in a business and um, come to your houses to pray and start selling you my business? What if I were to take your offerings to build my own empire? Greed. Jude talks about it. Peter talks about it. People whose God is their belly. Contaminating sin. There are churches here in Vancouver that have broken up because of money uh, being moved from place to place. Greed is a contaminating sin. Another contaminating sin is abuse. Any form of abuse in the church, be it between uh, a husband and wife in a home, that we are aware of and that we do not do anything about. Or abuse from 
the pastor or the elders upon the people is a contaminating sin because it brings in control and dominance that is completely opposite of everything the cross represents. Contaminating sins are sins that the church is aware of but will not do anything about it. They will tolerate it. And in, in tolerating it, it is beginning to infect the church because they are lowering the standards that God has set. Why? So that peacekeeping is put into place. Sexual immorality. Another contaminating sin, which is what Paul deals with right here. You must understand the background of this. Here is a man who is living with his stepmom. It's not a one-night stand. He is living with her on a regular basis. The church is aware of it and is refusing to do anything about it. Now in us, uh, as Christians, we think, oh, that is such a terrible thing. Please understand, in Corinth, that was normal. It was a decadent society in which having a mistress was a very normal thing, as it still is in certain cultures and societies around the world, even among Christians. So for us, it might be, oh, how could he... But for them, it wasn't a big deal, which is why Paul continuously had to write about idolatry and sexual immorality to the Corinthian church. But if there's sexual immorality in this house, and we are aware of it and we do not confront it, that is again a contaminating sin. Because the reason we will not confront it is because we want to keep peace. How? By completely ejecting the peace giver. The Prince of Peace, we kick out so that we can have peace in the church. How ridiculous is that? That's contaminating sin. Strife and rebellion is contaminating sin. Strife and rebellion is contaminating sin, guys. Strife spreads. Rebellion spreads. Accusation and slander is contaminating sin. How about that one? Never thought of that, eh? At least I didn't. That accusation and slander within a body is contaminating sin. Strife and rebellion is contaminating sin. Sorry? Yeah, gossip which is part of slander and accusation is contaminating sin. Just imagine that. It spreads and infects. How can I not infect you? If I come and gossip about Anna Melma and you go and tell somebody else, tell me how I'm not infecting the church. Strife is uh, dissension, a quarrel, uh, where we keep we divide the church into factions. These are contaminating sins. It spreads. Uh, I mean, we. Uh, I mean, you can see it in families. You can see it in companies. You can see it in churches where you get divided into two or three different factions. I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulo, uh, Apollos, and I'm of Cephas. Happens so often. Unforgiveness. Contaminating sin. Unforgiveness is a contaminating sin. And then, any... Guys... Uh, uh, any sin where you are approached by the church and asked to uh, uh, make restitution, restore, and come into a place of reconciliation, if you refuse that, that is a contaminating sin. So let's assume um, you come and tell me, Jacob, this is what 
uh, we as a church have decided so that you can bring yourself back into reconciliation with the body and with God. And I refused it. I said, no. Then I need to be expelled because now if I stay, I will contaminate the church because I have refused the most vital thing that the Holy Spirit does in a community, which is to bring reconciliation. He reconciles us with Christ and he reconciles us as a body, which is why in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, you have been baptized into a body by the Holy Spirit. It's like a part that is gangrenous and refuses to go to the doctor or go for healing or go for anything that will take the gangrene away and says, no, I want to be part of the body. It stays in the body. Your body will die. It requires expulsion. Questions? Um, unforgiveness almost always results in strife, dissension, accusation, slander, gossip in the body if unforgiveness is there. If, uh, if for instance, I have something against Elmer and Anne, um, it will eventually spread. Within the body, yeah. Outside, it's your personal thing that you have to sort out. But if it's anyone in the body, it needs to be sorted out. If I'm aware of it, um, I would... I mean, there were two people um, in this church who... Uh, needed to settle things and so uh, one day they both sat down uh, um, they were both willing to they both sat down and I locked the doors and left and they sorted things out and I came back and they were friends I mean they were never enemies but they needed to sort out stuff it was as simple as that lock people up and leave <laughs> but <laughs> within the body it needs to be sorted out Then uh, I now take um, Heidi and Chris and Wayne with me and we go and say, you need to do this. And they refuse again. So now I come to the church and I say, these two are refusing to reconcile. We as a church need to now tell them. And we go tell them that. And then if they refuse, treat them as if they were heathen. Yes. You never ask a person to leave the church because of sin. You always... Uh, sin, the church is uh, a great place for sinners in a sense but uh, you only ask a person to leave when they refuse to reconcile with God and with each other um, uh, so let me change the words that was a Jewish word so it works in their context treat them as one who is not part of your fellowship that would be the way we would say now not as heathen because for the Jews it was very clear how to treat heathen Oh, they wouldn't, uh, a Jew would not allow a Gentile into his house. Matthew 18, if you just want to turn there quickly. Matthew 18. We have to aspire to these sta high standards because the Christ we serve is a holy, holy, wonderful, absolutely attainable standard God. Matthew 18. Uh... Matthew 8, sorry, Matthew 8. Matthew 8. Nuts. Where is it? 
Guys, can you find that part? Oh, Matthew. Let me just. Sorry, guys. I thought it was Matthew. Oh, sorry. Matthew 18:15. Matthew 18:15. I was right. Matthew 18:15. Here goes. This is what Acts 29 will have to operate by. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. Just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you forbid or do not allow on earth will be forbidden and not allowed in heaven. And whatever you lose or permit on earth will be loosed and permitted in heaven. That's how. Uh, and just so you know, church, um, if, as Sue said, God forbid, such a situation happened uh, where I refuse to listen to the individual who's come, and there's a, uh, in the case of an elder, Everything has to be, first of all, established by two or three witnesses. You cannot bring an accusation against an elder just with, oh, I feel like bringing an accusation. You have to establish it by two or three witnesses. After that, you come and tell me and I refuse it. You go and speak to the elders and they come and tell me and I refuse it. The church tells me and I refuse it and I pull rank on you. Then I just want you to know that one of the things that I have set in place for Acts 29 is there are two people that I've asked that you can approach. One of them is Eddie, and the second one is Bob Cran. Bob Cran, not as a regional minister of the North American Baptist, but Bob Cran as a friend of Acts 29 and as a friend of Jacob's. These are two people you can go to. And they will speak, uh, they will listen to you, and they'll speak to me, not with an intent of doing me harm, but to remedy the situation. But these are two people you can go to. Because no one is exempt from this process. It has to be established. Eddie might, uh, um, <laughs> I feel terrible if Eddie had to do that because I love him so and I'd like to honor him with my life in a sense of speaking. But um, if he's too far away, you can go to Bob. Go ahead. Yep, non-contaminating sin would be uh, anything else that is personal between you and God where, uh, like last time I told you about lying, and how Matt and I spoke about it. So it could be uh, lying, it could be lust, it could be anger, where we do not know about it in church, but it's happening outside. You deal with it with God. Because uh, we need to understand that uh, uh, personal sins are confessed to God, and the sphere of confession is as broad as the context of the sin. Personal sin is confessed to God, and the sphere of confession, meaning how far do you go with the confession, is completely dependent on the context of the sin. If if I do him harm, then it is pointless that I just confess my sins to God. After talking to God about my sins, I need to go and set things right with him. Uh, husbands and wives, be aware of this. It is insufficient that you talk to God about uh, what you said or did to your husband or your wife. There is a party there that has to be spoken to. Your spouse has to be then spoken to. It is insufficient to say, Hallelujah, Lord. I'm guilt-free now. You have forgiven me. There's a party that needs to be spoken to. So the the scope of confession is dependent on the context of the sin. If it's intrapersonal, then you'll have to settle with the 
person. But if it's between God and you, then you speak to God about it. So that's how that part works. So why go and uh, confess your sins one to another? The only reason you do it is because one, you, uh, if someone starts praying for you, two, now you have brought it into the light, and we talked about this last week, and you're more aware of it, and you'll walk uh, circumspectly. Uh, those are the reasons. And you confess, if you're, someone is ministering to you, you confess your sins to them, so that sometimes when a root is revealed, oh, there have been so many instances, guys, where I'm ministering to someone, and the Lord says, talk to them about this, and they'll stand there and with a face as hard as flint, they'll say, nope, never happened. And I think to myself, come on, man, your healing is waiting, and I know it happened. But they won't. Want to save face? It's the saddest thing. Saddest thing. And they walk away, because their pride won't allow them to. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. Um, contaminating sins must not be swept aside for the sake of peacekeeping. Because if we don't confront contaminating sin, we emasculate our moral right to preach the kingdom message. Let me say that again. If we don't confront contaminating sin in this body, be it present, then we are literally emasculating ourselves um, uh, or our moral right to preach the kingdom message because you cannot be an embassy of God representing the morality of the king of kings uh, when you don't actually deal with it on the embassy level. And an embassy that does not represent its king should not speak its message. Simple. A church that allows contaminating sin will not have the ability to produce sons, guys. Won't have the ability to produce sons. You'll produce bastards. It's just the way it is. I don't know why we are talking about all this, but it is easily possible to be on missions abroad in Quebec and Indonesia and yet be relaxed, arrogant, and blind about sin in our own houses. And it will destroy the temple. Got to be aware of it. And often the responsibility first lies on the leadership. Yet strangely enough, in Acts chapter, First uh, Corinthians chapter 5, Paul doesn't spend much time focusing on the sin and the sinner he spends most of his time focusing on the church and its attitude. It's so strange. He says, okay, you got this guy who's sinning. And he explains the sin. But then the rest of the chapter is devoted to dealing with the church and its attitude, not with the sin and the sinner. Because if we are a body, guys, it's very different how this operates. We are a holy people. We must, I know I keep repeating it every Sunday, but we are not holy individuals first. We are a holy people first, and then we are holy individuals. Paul doesn't focus on the sinner and the sin. He focuses on the church and says, why are you so proud? What's wrong with you? 
How can you be so relaxed and so tolerant about this worldly attitude towards sin? You are worldly wise in your attitude towards sin, Corinthian church. What's wrong with you? Why are you so proud? You're arrogant and blind and you're relaxed about this. He's, his whole intent is to talk to the church. Strange, huh? I mean, you would think he should uh, rip a strip out of the sinner. It's a people first, guys. Can't turn the gospel into a tolerant, worldly, wisdom kind of a gospel divorced from Christian ethics. In Acts 29, we need to develop a passion for holiness and a revulsion for sin if we are actually a holy people. Because that's a key to being authentic sons of the Father because the Father said, be holy because I am holy. Be perfect because I am perfect. And all those letters are being written to whom, guys? Was any of these letters written to... I mean, take any letter in the Bible. Take it from um, um, Romans onwards, right down to Revelation, even when Christ writes letters. Um, Who are these letters being written to? To people, to people of God, to the body. Even Christ, when he dictates the letter, says, to the messenger at the church in the sink. It's a people that he wants, a holy people. He doesn't want a holy superstar. A holy people. This is what we have to become. I'll correct that. This is what we are called to be. Questions, comments before we move on? Moving on then to church. Sorry, John, you had a qu- uh, Ruth. Go ahead. Perfecting. Um, uh, um, uh, just rephrase your question, Ruth. Is this like perfecting character? Um, give me fifteen minutes and we'll be there. It's on the other side of the page because it answers uh, exactly. I mean, it literally uh, deals with that part of it. Is it perfecting of character? I'm just fascinated at how much there is in this chapter, Ruth, and how he deals with that question. Gosh, man, the word of God never ceases to have, it never comes to a place where you've dug it all. I mean, I'm talking about chapters, leave alone the book. Church, the Holy Spirit, and you. Guys, look at verse 3 and 4. I mean, going back to uh, Sue's um, standard statement when she's not here. Even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And I have already passed judgment on the one who did this just as just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan so that his sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. So Paul says he is present with them in spirit. What does this mean? Sue, you want to take a shot at it? When Paul... <laughs> When Paul says, uh, I am present with you in spirit, what does he mean? Wow, very good theologian. (laughs) Any other comments? Okay. 
Okay. Okay. Um, uh, turn to First Corinthians two, twelve and thirteen. It says there in First Corinthians two, twelve and thirteen, we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught us by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths and spiritual words. So the first statement that we can make is that if you were Paul, for instance, you can say that I have received the Spirit of God. That's the first statement we've made. Okay. Now let's turn to 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6. Starting at verse um, 15. It says that, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. Listen to verse 17. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in. Look at it again. He who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in, in spirit. Just think of the enormity of that, guys. Just think of it. I, I, I still, I've been... I've been thinking of it for the last three days and uh, there's just little lights going off, but not big lights yet. <laughs> he who is one with the Lord, meaning you, if you are one with the Lord because of Christ's life in you, you are one with the Lord in spirit. It's both a big S and a small S. I, Jacob, am one with the Lord in spirit. Do you know what? how, how, how terribly... Uh, intertwined or one that is I have received the spirit of God I am one with the Lord in spirit both the biggest and the smallest because it's really not clear uh, whether because both make sense I'm one with the Lord in spirit. We also know from 1 Corinthians 3.16 that you are the temple of the Now let's go, go back to what James was saying. You know what Paul is saying to them? Paul is saying, guys, I have received the spirit of God. You have received the God, Spirit of God and you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. I am one with the Lord in spirit. I am not there, but the Spirit of God is there. And because the Spirit of God is there, I am there. That's what he's saying, guys. It's ridiculous. But that's what he's saying. I do not understand the length and depth of it yet. But it fascinates me that that's what he's saying. Yeah. 
in you. Now do you understand why in Acts 5.3 Peter says, Why have you lied against the Holy Spirit? Who did Ananias came and lied to? To Peter. In the context of the body. They were bringing things to the body. And he comes and he lies in the presence of the body. To whom? To Peter. And Peter turns around in Acts 5 and 3 and he says, Why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? Fascinating verse. That I am one with the Lord in spirit. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit in you. I may not be there, but if the Holy Spirit is there, I am one with the Lord in spirit, therefore I am there. Paul understood something that we, I, I personally don't understand, but because I do not understand it, does not mean that I have to minimize this and say, oh, he was just being um, polite in the way he would speak that. Yeah, it was not symbolic. What we have done in Christianity is whenever we don't understand things, we render it symbolic. So, w another way of saying it is, <laughs> therefore, if the Spirit is present among you, uh, I mean, Paul is saying to uh, the, uh, the Corinthian church, therefore, if the Spirit is present among you, then I too am present among you by the same Spirit. <laughs> That's what he's saying. So, now you see why attacks against leaders or ag attacks against the church order or strife that is created in the church by people, uh, though targeted at men, is really taking on God's Holy Spirit himself. Because at the end of the day, another word that I love using for the church, it is, a, it is the community of the Spirit, forged by the Spirit, nurtured by the Spirit, kept by the Spirit. This is a people formed exclusively by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, when reconciliation with each other, or therefore when contaminating sin um, is uh, persisted in, really a person no longer has part in the body of Christ. Stark truth. Let me say that again. If a person continues to persist in contaminating sin, if a person refuses to reconcile with another in a body, then the person has no part in the body of Christ. That is the stark truth repeated again and again in the Bible. And therefore, the church has to discipline the person so that the person can be reconstituted into the body. But the person actually has no part in the fellowship of the body when the person chooses not to reconcile with someone where there's a difference in the body. Or when a person persists in contaminating sin despite being told and encouraged and helped, then the person actually has no part in the body. Therefore, Paul in his authority says, prophetically, expel this man in the name of Jesus Christ. Stark truth. We do it publicly. Peter at uh, one point, Paul at one point said, uh, Paul or Peter, I'm not too sure, one of them, oh, they said, when elders in particular make mistakes, make sure you don't sweep it under the carpet and tell them to be nice. Make sure that it's done publicly. Because things get to the level of things being done publicly only after repeated refusal on a private level. Expelling cannot be done privately, guys. 
Because these are the standards that the Word of God talks about. It says, first go settle it privately. Doesn't work. Take the elders of the church and try to settle it privately. Doesn't work. Take the church. Now it becomes a matter of the church. This is after repeated occurrences. And it is a way to pe- keep peace. If you don't do it publicly, it will keep peace. But eject the peace. Uh, Prince of Peace. By preaching and teaching this, we now have put ourselves in a place where we have to practice this. Otherwise, we are, f- we are fakes. This is why I had to call up Bob Crown and tell him, that listen, I uh, just want you to know that this is what I'm talking on. And I want you to be, I'm asking you to be not as a regional minister or NAB or anything. You've got to be this as a friend of Acts 29. So, when reconciliation or contaminating sin continues and reconciliation is refused, the person no longer has any part in the body of Christ. Therefore, Paul has this man expelled. And let's talk about church and expulsion, unless you have any questions. Church and expulsion, unless you have any questions. Now that is not a contaminating sin. (laughs) No. Any questions? Yes, that's always the, uh, the, the <laughs> as we look at the next bit, we'll see that the expulsion is not for judgment, but for uh, reconciliation and remedy. But it is the process that is biblical and has to be followed. As you read First uh, Corinthians 2 to 5, you'll see Paul saying, as I had written to you earlier. So he had broached this. Paul heard about it, but he had written to them earlier about the same thing. So it's not the first time they're hearing about it. Yes. Yes. He is. Not the elders. He's selling the whole church. Yeah. Yeah, he is. Because he had already written to them previously about this. And they haven't listened. In fact, uh, uh, statements like, I told you uh, before that you are not to associate with anybody who is immoral. When I told you that, I didn't mean that you cannot mix with the people of the world. I mean, he has broached this subject before. And one of the problems at Corinth was they were looking at his letters and saying, ah, Guy can speak big in his letters, but when he comes here, he's nothing. And therefore, he writes, that's what you think? Wait till I come. I'll come with a rod. So, yeah. Church and expulsion. Oh, by the way, guys, we have worked this into our constitution, okay? Just so you're aware. 
We did that before Acts 29 uh, was incorporated. We had this uh, as a statement of faith and it's part of our bylaws and is with uh, Ottawa or wherever. No, the bar. Yeah, yeah. Is with Ottawa in the sense that we have incorporated this into Acts 29 right from its inception uh, so uh, that we have the right uh, by the laws of the land to do this. Just so you're aware of it. So in your... Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've committed ourselves to it. And so when you sign that little piece of paper uh, saying you so like Acts 29, just be aware of this. I signed that paper too, by the way. Church and expulsion. Uh, in putting out, in putting uh, this man or um, someone out of the body of Christ, what happens is we put the person out into the world and the world is Satan's domain. Okay, when we put someone out of the church, we put him into Satan's domain. That's what, we put him into Satan's domain. So when someone is asked to now be put out of, the, when someone is put out of the body of Christ, he's put into the world, which is under Satan's domain. And the result is the destruction of his carnal nature. Destruction of his carnal or self, sinful nature. Some people say, oh, the result is that he dies out in the world. That would not be remedial. That would be judgmental. <laughs> so the, the intent, the intent is to, um, yeah, to purge the sinful nature. Uh, 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 so the result is the destruction of his sinful nature. The purpose is the man's salvation. The purpose is the man's salvation. And uh, sorry. Uh, when I say sinful nature, I don't mean uh, sinful nature as in a uh, Christian has a sinful nature. It, it means destroying uh, that uh, persistence in sinning is destroyed just because once you're thrown out of the, uh, once you're thrown out of the covering of the house where the favor of God is into the domain of Satan, uh, situations, I mean, at the end of the day, what does Satan want to do? Steal, kill, and destroy. That then drives the person back to a desire to come back and lodge himself in God. We've got different examples in the Bible. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel chapter 4, verses 32 onwards, you'll see Nebuchadnezzar who suddenly rose up in pride and then one day he becomes like a animal in the wild, long nails and long hair and he comes back to his senses and he says, God is God. And he declares God is God. Israel, Judges chapter 12, uh, no, Judges chapter 2, verses 13 to 19. You'll see in Judges chapter 2, every time a judge arose, Israel walked with the Lord. But as soon as the judge died, they would return into their sinful ways and the oppressors would come and ravage them. And when they would be ravaged, they would call out because they have already tasted of God. They would call out for His mercy and God would show mercy and they would be restored. Jonah, I mean that's an Old Testament picture, but Jonah was running away and ran too. Uh, the Corinthian church, um, the man in Second Corinthians chapter five, Second uh, Corinthians chapter two. Most people say is a different man, not the same man. But there was another man who was expelled out of the church in Corinth. Guess what? Paul says to the church in Corinth in Second Second Corinthians two, bring him back. He has learned his lesson. Return him to the fold. 
So it does work in that sense. Which then leads us to another point. Unless a church is a community that has learned to live in truth and love, why would anyone want to yearn to return? For a church to be remedial in its discipline, a church will have to be a place where God dances in our midst so that when we leave, we will yearn to join God who dances. Because if the church is not that community, then, I mean, do do you know why remedy fails? It fails because there is nothing that is particularly drawing me back to that community. So you chuck me out? Sure, big deal. I'll go down to another community. Or you chuck me out? I'm not missing much. I can sit in front of TV and it's as good. If TV is as good as Acts 29, then Acts 29 is failing. Yeah, but but the reason church discipline does not work or is ineffective in most places is because being expelled out of a community of believers is no big deal. I'm telling you this, guys. If you expel me, God forbid, out of this community, it won't be my desire. I mean, I'll have I'll so long to come back, man. I, I love being with us. I don't like coming to... I'm not talking about coming to Acts 29. Oh, I come to church. No, I like being with us and what God does in our midst. I really like this. It's like when Artie was upset with me for two weeks, two Decembers ago, and he told me, no coffee for you. And he meant it. He shouted at me and threw me out. And he said, no coffee for you. I knew what that meant. That I had not get his coffee bean. And so, um, uh, uh, for the first two or three days, uh, uh, I managed with the leftovers. The fourth day, I went down Main Street and other streets looking for coffee uh, roasteries. And I found places and I bought their coffee. And I would go and make it. And I'd hate getting up in the morning. Because it's th- it was lousy coffee. And I thought to myself, what have I gone and done? Yeah. Because because <laughs> because Kenyan grade A coffee, there's nothing like it, guys. And you got to roast it right. And he does that. So I remember finally after two weeks when um, we both became friendly and he still wasn't talking. And yet, uh, just as I came to lock the church, because we used to meet the church there, as I was leaving, he said, that's for you. <laughs> that was his way of reconciling. I said, sorry, that's for you. Thank God he's not listening to the state. And so I went there and it took every ounce of my moral fiber to pretend that no big deal. I said, well, thank you. But inside me it was, I got my coffee, I got my coffee, I got my coffee. (laughs) You see, because I'd gotten so used to it and I so like it. And it's such a thing to look forward to when you wake up that suddenly it was like, oh, shucks, it's taken away. That should be how, that should, how, that's, that is how church should be like. Then, discipline 
is so not fun. Whatever you're thinking, Matt, hold it, don't say it. Yeah, I know. Yeah, you had that look. <laughs> so, so the, the, once once we become a community that um, I've basically how I've written it is that where God dances in our midst, then it will hurt to leave, guys. Then it will hurt to leave. Some cautions, though. This. Removing of a person from fellowship because he's refusing to either deal with contaminated sin or refusing to reconcile within uh, the body is not pronounced like a fatwa by uh, the right reverend pastor. No, 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 no. This, this is not that kind of a decree. It's not done by a small Kabbalah group. It's, it's, it's the result of a sin known by all, contaminating all, and therefore, the action has to be taken by all. It's not taken by one person or two people or three people meeting and saying, we've got to kick this guy out. That's not how it works. That's how they get rid of pastors. doesn't work like that. Uh, it is, uh, uh, th- that is, uh, uh, forgive me for saying this, but that is our uh, secular, humanistic, uh, sympathetic way of thinking. But this only happens after a process, first, the person is persisting in sin and he's aware of it. Uh, let me put it this way. When a man sleeps with his stepmother, he's aware of it. When he's told first, he's made aware of it. When two people tell him, he's aware of it. When the church tells him, he's aware of it and he still refuses to change, then he really has no part in the fellowship. Yeah. No, it's a public. Uh, it's hum- Why is it humiliating? But what about the sin? If the sin does not humiliate him, then if this humiliates it again, there's a. Uh, it's misaligned. Something is wrong. Um, we'll come to that. How we cannot have it both ways. We'll come to that. Yeah, I, I understand what you're, you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, and so you don't do it till you go through this entire process. Yeah. Yeah, very clearly. Because it's persistent sin that is being done in the open. That's the thing, James. It is persistent sin being done in the open. Therefore, it is being publicly now confronted. If it was persistent sin done in secret, it's different. This is persistent sin done in open view. The same thing, this is why God said about Zimri, and not Zimri, God said about Phinehas, that I will remember your jealousy for me forever. Because when God in his glory, like as in visible glory, came down among the Israelites, and all Israel was worshipping, Zimri was, caressing um, Zimri was caressing Cosby and couldn't care two hoots about the glory of the God of the universe and Phinehas is consumed with jealousy and he takes a javelin and pokes both Zimri and Cosby right through 
in public. And there was a plague that had started. The, uh, yeah, the plague stops. And God says, I'll remember your jealousy for generations. Amen. When a sin is practiced publicly in defiance of the people of God and God himself, and if there is no change time after time after time of encouraging change, then it is dealt with publicly. Christ was humiliated publicly for these very sins. He didn't die in a secret garden somewhere. Hung publicly for the entire world to see. Hung naked, beaten, spat upon, um, humiliated publicly. It does contaminate the whole church. Yeah, you walk outside of being authentic sons. Again, what even the contamination is public. H1N1 is public. It's not something that's happening in secret. Therefore, the government is making public announcements to counter it. And contamination is public. Yeah. Good question, though. Because I always say God cherishes our privacy. This is not his first resort, guys. First he speaks again and again. Then when he sees that it isn't working, he shows someone else. And that's why the Bible says, if you go and help your brother come out of sin, you have covered a multitude of sins and you have delivered him from the snare of the devil. After that, he sends two people more. It's such a long process. Sometimes this takes years. Years. And like Rizla was saying, Reason for discipline is remedial, not judgmental. And uh, the other thing that I pray God that we'll do is when someone else comes from another church where the person is being disciplined, may we never be in a hurry to accept them, regardless of whether they are a wonderful sax player or a great healer. If you're being disciplined in another church and you come here, I mean, if I find out, this is just a, let me change my words. Let's assume that Diana was joy coming to Acts 29 because she's being disciplined at Emmanuel. She would not be welcome here. Diana, um, we realize that uh, you're being disciplined at Emmanuel. Ba- this is on tape now. This is not true. It's just an example. We realize you're being dis- yeah. We realize you're being disciplined at Emmanuel Baptist Church, and so till you are sorted out with that house uh, and things are reconciled, we would not be able to receive you as a son in this house because you have to settle things with them. You can, but not as a, not as a um, integral member, mem- for the lack of a better word, member. I would go and tell them, and uh, I may not be able to do anything if they are not part of this house. But guess what? Once this house speaks and declares that you need to correct yourself, and you do not, really, God help you. Because are you not dealing with me, mortal flesh? You're dealing with him who is the spirit of God, who, who, who wants us as sinners to be transformed into what Christ looks like but who 
uh, says that the uh, church is not a haven for people who want it both ways either. And we'll talk about that now. His body. Yeah, his body. Otherwise, you know what will happen, guys? I was going to talk about this on Tuesday. There's a place where Jesus chases out the money lenders out of the temple and he says, you have made my house into a den of thieves. A time comes when he has, he's standing looking over Jerusalem and he says, oh Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, how I've wanted to gather you as chicks in my arm. But now, since you have rejected me, I leave your house. Some two years ago when he kicked out people from the temple, he called it my house. Two years later he's saying, your house is left desolate to you. God forbid that ever happens to us. Where he has to change my house to your house. God forbid that. It's the worst thing that God can say to us. Oh, how his heart must grieve. How his heart must grieve at times. Where things have started as my house and he now has to say your house. And yet power brokers and power structures sit in their spiritual armchairs and gloat over how well church is going. May we never become those fat cats ever. Oh, that's the horriblest thing anyone can say to a church. Church unleavened. Guys, NIV uses the wrong word. NIV uses the word yeast. Now yeast is fresh. Leaven is not fresh. You can take yeast out of a bottle and throw it in and it's fresh. But it's a wrong usage. It's leaven. And leaven, how it used to work is leaven consisted of keeping back a little portion of last week's dough, allowing it to ferment, then adding it to this week's dough. That's how leaven worked. So with each week, it would get more and more potent. So this week you make your bread and you take out a little of the dough from this week and you keep it aside till it ferments and then you take that and add it to next week's dough. Yeast is fresh, leaven is not. So the longer the process was repeated, the more potent and sometimes infected the dough got. And this is exactly how it is with the tolerance of sin in a body or in our individual lives where you take a little bit from last week's sin and instead of getting rid of it fully, you have repented of it, you have kind of made things okay. But instead of letting it all go, you keep a little of last week's sin back and now you add it to this week's dough. Now you think, but I dealt with it last week and I'm just taking a little, uh, just a little. I'm tolerating a little. But it is so potent from last week that when you add it in this week's dough, suddenly you've got something that's even more infected. The week after that, it gets more potent and it's repeated. The longer the process we re, uh, is repeated, the more potent it gets till it comes to a point where the dough is infected because um, it is unhygienic. Yeah, sourdough. No, no, I'm serious. Sourdough. And that's how it works with tolerance of sin in my life or sin in the body, a little of which can infect the whole body. Which is why in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, or Passover, 
they had the ceremonial cleaning of the house before Passover um, from leaven. And the whole idea was that we are ceremonially cleaning our house of all leaven because we're going to start with a new batter dough. That was the whole idea, guys. <laughs> I'm going to clean my house and get rid of every bit of old leaven that I've been using to bake my bread because I'm going to start now with this feast of unleavened bread of Passover. I'm starting a new batter dough. And then along comes Christ, the Passover lamb. And that's exactly what he does. He says, I am inaugurating a new season for you. You are becoming a new loaf, a new batter dough with no leaven in it. This is what we're talking about, guys. We are continuously celebrating the feast of unleavened bread. That's what Christ came to do. He inaugurated a new start or a covenant. I want us to look at this beautiful verse in 1 Corinthians 5, verse uh, 7. Hey, Heidi, can I trouble you for some more water, please? Um, uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Look at it. Uh, Let's start at 6. Your boasting is not good. Thanks. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batter dough? Little leaven works through the whole batch dough. Get rid of the old leaven that you may be a new batch without leaven as you really are. It's vital. You've got to see that there. He says, get rid of the old leaven so that you may become a new batch of dough which you really are. Why is that important? Because guys, um, please understand that Paul is not saying get rid of sin so that you can become holy. Please listen. This is so, so cool. He's not saying get rid of sin so you can be holy. He's not saying get rid of your bad ways and old life so that you can be holy. He's saying no, no, no. Guys, become what you are. You are already holy. Go ahead. Yeah, it's a done deal, guys. Paul, Paul is not falling into old, old Testament ways of saying, oh, if you want to be holy, do this, 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 and you will be holy. Get rid of sin and you will be holy. No, no, he's saying get rid of the old leaven so that you can be the new batch of dough that you already, which you are. It's like saying become what you are. Become what you are. That's what Paul is trying to say. Yeah, but the the beautiful thing is we have become that. Yeah, so uh, another way to put it would be I must become what I already am by God's grace. I must become what I already am by God's grace. So this is not going back to works, guys. This is not saying get rid of sin and you will be holy. No, no, no. Because you're holy, be sinless. I must become what I've all I must become what I already am by the grace of God. Become what you are. Guys, I'll write the statement down. A holy life a holy life is not what makes us holy. But if we have been 
made holy. It should show in a holy life. A holy life is not what makes us holy. Meaning living out a holy life is not what makes us holy. But if you have been made holy, it should show in a holy life. If not, there's something wrong, guys. Go back to my old saying, you cannot be half pregnant, thanks. Paul is so thorough in his letters, man. He leaves no room for <laughs> maneuvering. It goes back to the Father saying, this is what I've called you to be and I've made you this. Now, live it out. Um, it is related to our understanding of the truth. Uh, because most of us live holy lives to be holy. And uh, God is saying, but I've already made you holy. Live holy lives because I've made you holy. Become what you are. It's like you looking at your son and saying, this is my dream for you. I've told you about it. Now become what you are. Back on track. Which is usually how God deals with sin in my life. He's saying, Jacob, why did you do that? You know what I've said about you. You know what you're called to be. So come, come son, rise up, get up. Step into what you are called to be. It's that kind of a thing. Guys, the reason we're talking about all this is because, uh, like it or not, holiness of a body like this is central. Your family values affect your children. The plumb line of holiness that Acts 29 sets will affect you if you're a part of this house. If you're a, if you're a connected part of this house, it'll affect you. If we lower our standards, it'll affect you too. Because the values of a household affect its people. If this was a household given to social work among the poor and the needy and the hungry and the helpless in downtown, then I guarantee you that will be part of our DNA. This house likes being sent. It's part of our DNA. Family values determine how we are. And just so you know, when uh, Paul talks about there about celebrating the feast of Passover, this does not mean that we have to now go and celebrate Jewish festivals, guys, okay? That's not what God is. He's saying, celebrate the feast of Passover, and then he goes on to say, what kind of celebration is it? He says, let go of malice and wickedness and cling to sincerity and truth. Because there is a tendency to begin to practice Jewish uh, festivals and think that by practicing it, we are perhaps a little closer to God. No. If you read Romans 11.39, it says there, and this also I was going to tell you on Tuesday, it says there that uh, the only way a Jew is grafted into the body of Christ is when he believes. If he does not believe, he will not be grafted into the body of Christ. There is no speciality to Jewish festivals, functions, observances now. It doesn't bring you one iota of holiness. Read it, understand it, and stand in the New Testament and look at the Old Testament. When we begin to practice Jewish festivals, we are standing in the Old Testament and looking into the 
New Testament. We are standing in the shadow and looking at the substance when we are called to stand in the substance and look at the shadow. Questions, comments? So let me conclude that part and then we move on to the last bit. Um, If I belong to Christ, I must put off my former ways. Guys, it's one thing to struggle with former sin, but to persist or be relaxed about it shows that I don't really want to be part of the body of Christ. It's one thing to struggle with sin, and all of us do. It's one thing, it's one, it's one thing to struggle with sin, but if I persist or I'm relaxed about sin, then it shows uh, 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 irreverence towards being a melos, M-E-L-O-S, or member of the body, the actual body of Christ. So church is for the church is for this is no, I mean the church is not a place for the sinless. The church is for people who are working through um, uh, uh, s- s- uh, sins and patterns and habits. But it is neither is it a fellowship uh, or a ha- haven for those who want it both ways. Um, the one thing to s- it is it is it's one thing to struggle with sin, but to persist or be relaxed about sin shows that shows an ir oh man even I can't read it shows an irreverence towards being a melos M E L O S which means Greek for a member of the body of Christ. Gosh that is terrible. Thanks Gabe. You should have said no Jacob it looks beautiful. <laughs> oh speak the truth. Okay, just don't look at that for a while. <laughs> Let me put it this way. It's one thing to struggle with sin. But it's another thing to persist in it or be relaxed about it. This is where each one of us has to check our lives, guys. Are you? Am, am I relaxed about it? Which is as bad as persisting in it. When you're relaxed about it, you will borrow from last week's dough and add it to this week. And if I'm relaxed or persisting in sin and I have made no attempt to change and I'm not struggling with it, I'm resting in it, then really I have an obnoxious irreverence for um, being a melos, M-E-L-O-S, Greek word for being an actual part of the body of Christ. There's an absolute irreverence for it, M-E-L-O-S. That's the word used in the Bible. You are members, melos of the body of Christ, meaning you are a limb attached to the body. I got a call from uh, a family in India uh, who we had met uh, three years ago. And when we met them three years ago, one of the things the Lord said into their lives was that someone's going to come into your life and say to you that I want to send you on a trip abroad and I'll pay for your entire airfare and I'll pay for your hotel, for your food and accommodation. That was in 2006. And um, last week, a person comes to them, and it's a family of four people, and says to them, 
uh, I'd like to send you to Malaysia and Singapore, and I'd like to pay for the entire trip. I'd like to pay for all the hotels, and I'd like to pay for the, f pay for the food. Now, why am I saying this to you? Sometimes when you look at the words that have been spoken over your lives by whoever, you may think nothing is happening. This took three years, folks, but it came to pass. I'd suggest that you occasionally go home and look at things that have been spoken over your life. Because you have to remind yourself, because it does come to pass. This took three years, and I got a call from them saying um, um, that we are going, and the person's paying for the entire trip for four people, man. Took three years. They'd almost forgotten it. So go back and check, because many of the things spoken over your lives will come to pass. But live in the hope and in the faith of it. Because when we don't believe what God has said, sometimes that acts as a barrier from us receiving things in exact time. Just thought I'll drop that in. Okay, here goes. Unprecedented living, principles of glory, and we're talking about Aaron's rod. Um, that's what we, we started this um, two weeks ago. Uh, here's our premise for those of us who weren't here or have forgotten. The Bible says that the ark used to be the carrier of God's glory. So the priests would carry the, the ark upon their shoulders. They'd step into the Jordan and the Jordan would part. Um, the ark was where the glory or the... What's, what's another way of defining glory? Sue, go ahead. <laughs> goodness, what else? Power. It's God's goodness, His reputation, His splendor, His weight, His, uh, His nature, His character, all wrapped into one is called His glory. Everything. His reputation, splendor, weight, glory, uh, nature, character, influence, all of it is encompassed in this one word called glory or kabod. Kabod means weight of all that He is. And the ark used to be the carrier of God's glory, but we now know that... Who's the ark now? We. We are the carriers of God's glory. We as a corporate body. Folks, most of the things we'll be talking about can apply and will apply to our individual lives. But never forget, we need to see things as a corporate body. We are a new man. We are a new man. The Bible talks about Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 to 17 says, So that you may be built into the full stature of Christ, that you may be built into a new man. We are that. Which is why when uh, Lorian said, did you write the song? It is true that I wrote the song, but my response was deliberate when I said, it is a song from this house. Because that song would not be a reality if it didn't come out of what God is feeding us. He broke the bread about being sent two weeks ago, and we shared in it. It is ours, our house. Got to begin to think like that, folks. Got to begin to think like that. Um, the focus is the body and the new man, and the thing is, when we focus like that, no, it begins to filter and percolate and get deposited in our lives also. That's how it works. Um, Hebrews 9 verse 4 is where we found out that the ark had three things in it. If you want to turn to Hebrews 9 verse 4. Hebrews 9 4. 
the ark had three things in it. Uh, reading from verse 4 or verse 3. 9 3. Behind the second curtain was a room called the Most Holy Place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold covered Ark of the Covenant. And it says there, This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. And in the last two weeks or more, we have covered the stone tablets, we've covered uh, the jar of manna and what it represents. And you can pick up the CD if you don't remember or weren't here. And now we are going to talk about Aaron's staff. Uh, just want to say that this is the kind of message I would like someone else to preach on my behalf. And as we go on, you'll kind of see why. This is the kind of message where you'd prefer a, a, a someone who comes from outside and preaches it on my behalf. But that's not the way it works now anymore. So we're not... I just thought I'll throw that in. Uh, let's read uh, the background of Aaron's uh, staff. Let's go to uh, Numbers chapter 17. Numbers 17. Numbers 17. Yes. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and get twelve staffs from them, one from the leader of each of their ancestral tribes. Write the name of each man on his staff. On the staff of Levi, write Aaron's name. For there must be one staff for the head of each ancestral tribe. Place them in the tent of meeting, in front of the testimony where I meet with you. The staff belonging to the man I choose will sprout, and I will rid myself of this constant grumbling against you by the Israelites. To find the background, go to chapter 16 and uh, go to um, verse 16. Uh, chapter 16. Um, no, let's go to chapter 16, verse 1 to 4. Look at what it says. Chapter 16, verses 1 to 4. Korah, son of Izar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi and certain Reubenites, Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, become, became insolent and rose up against Moses. With them were 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders who had been appointed members of the council. They came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? When Moses heard this, he fell face down. Then he said to Korah and all his followers, In the morning the Lord will show who belongs to him and who is holy, and we will have that person come near him. The man he chooses, he will cause to come near him. You, Korah, and all your followers are to do this. Take censers tomorrow, put fire and incense in them, the man the Lord chooses will be the one who is holy. You Levites have gone too far. Now come back to 17 and let's continue from verse 6 of chapter 17. So Moses spoke to the Israelites and their leaders and gave, and their leaders gave him 12 staffs, one for the leader of each of their ancestral tribes. And Aaron's staff was among them. Moses placed the staffs before the Lord in the tent of the testimony. 
The next day Moses entered the tent of the testimony and saw that Aaron's staff, which represented the house of Levi, had not only sprouted but had budded, blossomed and produced almonds. Then Moses brought out all the staffs from the Lord's presence to all the Israelites. They looked at them and each man took his own staff. The Lord said to Moses, Put back Aaron's staff in front of the testimony to be kept as a sign to the rebellious. This will put an end to their grumbling against me so that they will not die. Moses did just as the Lord commanded. The Israelites said to Moses, We will die. We are lost. We are all lost. Anyone who even comes near the tabernacle of the Lord will die. Are we all going to die? Why did they react like that? Go to verse 32. Chapter 16, verse 32. Or chapter 16, verse 28. Then Moses said, This is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things and that it was not my idea. If these men die a natural death and experience only what usually happens to men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about something totally new and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them with everything that belongs to them and they go down alive into the grave, then you will know that these men have treated the Lord with contempt. As soon as he finished saying all this, the ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them with their households and all Korah's men and all their possessions. They went down alive into the grave with everything they owned. The earth closed over them and they perished and were gone from the community. At their cries, all the Israelites around them fled shouting, the earth is going to swallow us too. So that's the background of the story and uh, we needed to know that because as we talk about Aaron's rod, this is where the whole idea came from. So basically, Aaron's rod, if you were to, if someone were to ask you and say, so what's Aaron's rod about? Aaron's rod first, it represented the authority of the father in the house. Aaron's rod represented the authority of the father of each house. Each house was told, listen, go and get your staff. Each staff is to represent the father of a tribe. And so Aaron's rod in this case represents the authority of the father of the house. Okay? And it also was placed as a signal or a red flag against bitterness, against rebellion and against obstinacy of the sons of the house. So let me say this again. The rod represents the authority of the father of the house. Of the father of the house. And it also was supposed to be a red flag or a um, signal against rebellion, obstinacy, and bitterness. from or of the sons of the house. So that's, uh, th- at its very base, that's what it represents. Aaron's rod represented on one hand the authority of the f- father of the house, but when it was kept in the ark, it was supposed to represent the rebellion. It was not supposed to represent, it was supposed to be a signal or a red flag against Rebellion, obstinacy, and the bitterness of the sons of the house. Any questions? Comments?
Yeah, a signal or or a uh, or a please beware. Yeah. Yeah, like a reminder in a negative sense, not in a yeah that don't like a warning sign. Um, so that's what the Bible says it was supposed to do. Any questions with regard to this? See, folks, there is co-equality among all believers. We've talked about that. All believers are now priests and kings. But one of the mistakes Korah made was he goes and says to uh, Moses in chapter 16, verse 3 or 4. Chapter 16, verse 3. Numbers chapter 16, verse 3. Look at it. They came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? Folks, Korah was right in his um, initial statement. The entire community is holy. He wasn't making a false statement there. It was a correct statement. We are all priests and kings. There's an equality among believers today. There's no division between clergy and laity. That, that doesn't exist anymore. Like I love saying, the day Christ died and the curtain was tore apart, the Levites ran out of a job. Suddenly, Israel's priesthood did not have a job. They were supposed to lead people into the Holy of Holies. Now the Holy of Holies was exposed. But as much as there is a co-equality of believers, we need to understand that God sets for the sake of the house a, a hierarchical order that does not have to do with rank and importance, but has to do with divine order. You'll see that in the Godhead too. Father, Son and Spirit are co-equal. But we know from, for instance, John 14, 28, that Jesus said the Father is greater than I. It is not to say that God, the Father, is somehow stronger and more powerful than Jesus, the Son. No. We know without a shadow of a doubt that the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit are co-equal. But the Father is first among equals. This is an old principle that God has been trying to develop throughout, but occasionally we who have postmodern, westernized or easternized mindsets do not like the whole idea. Because co-equality and the democratic way of doing things is preferred. And as we talk about it more, you'll see what I mean. Any questions? Preach on. F guys, feel free to question. Oh, hey, I'm not sure. Any questions? See, when God establishes a hierarchy, it is not for ruling folks. It's for establishing order. We, and as you go further, we'll see how God fleshes it out. But we need to understand that God does not operate without order. God does not operate without order. Unfortunately, what has happened... Well, please, here's another thing. Why are we talking about this? You know, I don't know whether you saw this on global TV, but there, there's a family that has bought a house in the valley, I don't know where... Here's what happened. They bought the house for $126,000. They thought they were getting a good deal. What had happened was they had foundations laid 
till the steps. And then when the part that is right under the house, some of you saw it, right? Right under the house, the foundations are faulty. So what is happening is they can't even shut their front door now because the house is beginning to sink. You can see the paneling on the wall begin to warp. The house is at an angle. Why? Because the foundations are not right. They um, um, evaluated their house and they found that now it costs $60,000. They are a low-income family who bought a brand new house. And now they won't even get sixty grand for it. Why? Because the foundations were faulty. But the house is new. The house is new. And useless. It's, at one point they said, we don't even know if this will become a death trap because it might collapse on them. Imagine the door not shutting because the house is beginning to keel over. See, that is why we are talking about this because if we want to build this house right, we have to get these principles in. Otherwise, four years down the road, we'll all be walking like this. Hey, how are you, Diana? Good to see you. Can't do that. Because ruling carries in it um, lordship and authority. And Jesus very clearly said at one point, the, the people who are leaders in the world lord it over their uh, subjects and they rule over them. I have not called you to do that. Have you noticed that I am your servant and yet you call me master? So... When we talk about ruling, there seems to be a... And that's not it. That's not what he's calling us to. Um, it's John somewhere. I'll, I'll, I'll get... It, it's on your sheet, um, but I don't exactly... Uh, let me just check where it is. No, it's not 14.28. It's Luke 22.23. Luke 22.23. We'll actually get there a little later. Yep. Basically, a guy called Korah and his um, cohorts decided that Moses doesn't need to lead us anymore. We are as holy as him, so why can't we lead him? Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. And he's, he, he, instead of arguing with them, falls down on his face and says, I can't handle this. Yeah, he, they actually said that. They accused him of that. Yeah, recognizing God's choice. And so Moses says, sorry Matt, just one sec. So Moses says, okay, let God decide. God decides, one, by making sure that rebellion was swallowed. Two, he says, let me settle this once and for all. Tell all the 12 tribes and their fathers to bring a staff from each of the tribes. So we decide once and for all which tribe is to, which person out of which tribe will uh, from now on lead. And that's how Aaron's rod takes and it begins to bud blossom and bear almonds, which we will talk about. Go ahead, Matt. Um, meekness is, uh, we talked about it ages ago. Gosh, I'm forgetting my definitions. Meekness is the strength that a horse has under the control of its master. You wouldn't call a horse that's standing under its master weak. But you'll be surprised at how you can go and rub its nose and it won't do nothing to you. And yet it could take you out with one kick. You've experienced that with cows. 
No, 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 I'm not kidding. Matt and I have talked about it. You remember you told me once you... Yeah, the calf that kicked you. Sorry, not the cow. Meekness is a strength that is not aggressive but stands its ground. It's reined in. It's under control. Yeah, like a racehorse. Just you let it go and it can really fly, but it doesn't even chomp at the bits when it's told to stand still. Not aggressive, but r- what did I say? But stands stands in strength. Yeah. Yeah, and then he changed. Remember, most of our uh, psycholo- uh, most of our understanding of Moses comes from Charlton Heston. So make sure that you're not thinking of him when you think of Moses. All our understanding of Moses comes from the Ten Commandment movie. It was on last night too. Oh, then you're fortunate because uh, I mean I had so many. Th- I thought Moses had done so many things which he really hadn't done, but in the movie he did. So I thought it sounded right, but it's not true. But he changed. He was a man of great... I mean, Jesus said he was a type of me. So, yeah, he was the meekest man that walked the face of the earth. So, uh, please understand that there is a hierarchical order um, in the priesthood of believers. And I've said this before. God selects faulty, inadequate man by divine design. God selects faulty, inadequate man by divine design and it has nothing to do with democracy, succession, reputation, pedigree. Got nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with reputation, success, succession, pedigree or uh, anything of that sort. And amazingly he appoints men and women to the church to equip the church or men and women to the church to lead the church. Nothing to do with Democracy, succession, reputation, or pedigree. Unfortunately, however, the <laughs> you can't use unfortunately and however. So let's go with however. However, since the Old Testament, you can't use however and since either. Unfortunately, how do you get around this? <laughs> Forget both. Since the Old Testament... Man has all... Diana is now stuck at, why can't we use those words? (laughs) Get over it. (laughs) Sadly, since the Old Testament, man has always tried to usurp or take over leadership in the church through structures and methods that are ungodly. Folks, it's an old, old, old problem. Ever since the Old Testament, man has been trying to usurp or take... um, authority in the church through ungodly methods or ungodly structures. But if we as a people, we as a church, want to represent God's glory, God's reputation, God's nature, God's character, if we want to represent that accurately, we have to understand that the principle of Aaron's rod applies today as much as it applied in the Old Testament. If we want to make sure that four years from now, the doors of this church will shut and open and will not get stuck and will not be at an angle, this has to be established. Because 
culture and time does not change these, these eternal principles, folks. And if we violate these principles, then basically the earth consumes, just like that man's house is being consumed, because the earth is swallowing that house up. So let's look at some orders or systems in the church today that uh, and figure out if they're divine or defective. Please understand that sometimes people set up a certain system in a church and it's based on their understanding of scripture, but I'd like to suggest to you that their understanding is inaccurate. Just because I understand something doesn't mean it's right. I've got to understand it correctly. Yeah, I remember a girl who went for a driving test and she didn't know that her indicator was a wiper. So she's sitting there for the test and she's got the guy next to him and he says, give your right indicator and the wiper starts working. I mean, you need to understand it correctly before. And the other thing I want us to understand is, um, folks, as we talk about this, you, know, you may think of churches, you may think of pastors, you may think of people and you may think, man, they've got it completely wrong or they've got it completely right. Remember that we are not to throw spears at people. That's Saul's job. We are not Saul-like. We are supposed to be David-like. So even as we expose defective systems and dismantle them, make sure that we do not throw spears at those who disagree with us. Because that would be exactly what King Saul would have done. We can't afford to do that. So let's look at some of the uh, orders or structures in churches today in terms of ruling. One, the first one is called, and you must have heard of it, it's called Episcopalian. Episcopalian. That's how the papal structure works. Where there's a pope, there are some cardinals, there are some archbishops, and then there are some bishops, and then there are some reverends, and then there are some deacons. What happens in a system like this is that um, the subjects are cut off and are in bondage to the king. It's the pope who decides what goes and what does not. This system has nothing to do with any godly order in the church. You cannot have one big honcho sitting and telling you what to do from um, Rome or from Bombay. It's a defective system. It releases people who are in bondage to a king who is seated far away. That's not how we are supposed to function. And that's a common system in some churches. It doesn't have to be Catholic, folks. It can be a church that is uh, not Catholic and yet has a structure where there's a head someone and he issues decrees and edicts that have to be followed by the group of churches under. Not the way to go. The second order is um, Presbyterian. Presbyterian. I'm not talking about any denomination. I'm talking about systems. Presbyterian. The Presbyterian system is basically where you have elders telling the leader how to run the church. You have elders telling the leader how to run the church. This is common in many, 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 many churches. The elders tell the leader how to run the church. And what happens then is that it's an oppressive system that's run by consultation. So if the leader wants to do something, I'll have to go and first sit at this table and say, you know, I feel God saying that I need to do this, this, and this. And then you will all vote to decide whether God is actually, whether we should go ahead with what God is saying. It's ridiculous, man. This is exactly what happened with Samuel 
Matt, am I still on? or? Okay. Uh, this is exactly what happened with Samuel and Israel. God told Samuel, I will be their leader. And the elders of Israel, I've given you the scriptural reference there. The elders of Israel come and say to Samuel, no, 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 no. You are old and your children are not following God. We want a king like the other nations. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a defective system. It was, it's not a godly system. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, that's not a godly system. I'm not saying a church that adopts a system will not do relatively well. But who's, who wants relatively well when we are talking about Christ, the Son of God who is perfect and whose ways are perfect? And who paid the price for the body? Whose bride are you messing around with? I mean, we are talking about the church being the wife of Christ. The third system is congregational. Congregational is where there is democratic rule. The whole congregation decides whether we should do something or not do something. The whole congregation decides. You know, unfortunately, whenever the crowd gets together to decide something, they usually choose Barabbas. That's exactly what happened to Jesus. When the crowd got together, they chose Barabbas. And so, whenever there's a congregational model where things are democratically voted on so that uh, the church will decide through a democratic election, a democratic um, choice, whether we should do something or not do something. I'm telling you, it is so packed with uh, stuff that will undo what God may want to do. Yeah. The, the church in Laodicea, in Revelations 3.14, the word Laodicea means the rights of the people. That's what the word means. Laodicea means rights of a people. And what was the problem with the church of Laodicea? The church of Laodicea was lukewarm. And I'm suggesting to you that it is impossible when the majority decides on something for anything to be without compromise, folks. You have to come to a happy compromise to gain votes. That's how uh, politicians win. You know, I know pastors and I've been in churches where um, there are good men and women and they're making sacrifices for the church. But ultimately, regardless of sacrifices they might make for the goodwill of the church, the destiny of the church is decided by either a democratic decision or by a group of elders who may not be in the same page. Just the way it is. Then there is the independent leader. The independent leader is an authority unto himself. The independent leader is an authority unto himself. He does what he wants and he controls through charisma or intimidation. An independent leader is an authority unto himself. He does what he wants and he controls through charisma or through intimidation. People like that end up being the head and the husband of the church. When it's actually Christ who is the head and the husband of the church. Independent leaders 
will control either through tremendous charisma where you will follow or through intimidation where you're afraid to touch or say anything because you think something will happen to you. In situations like that, Christ is no longer the head of the church. They become the head of the church. In situations like that, Christ is no longer the bridegroom of the bride. They become the bridegroom. Folks, there's a difference when it comes to um, the bride of Christ. If you were getting married, I'm assuming a bride chooses a bridesmaids, right? Yeah? Yeah. But when it comes to the church, the bridegroom chooses the bridesmaids for the bride. In, in the world, a bride goes and says, you, you, and you will be my bridesmaid, and then she spends a whole lot of money so that they all look the same. Uh, meaning, they all dress up the same. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Please ignore that observation. <laughs> but, but the thing with Christ as the bridegroom is that He is the one who picks the bridesmaids for His bride. He knows who to pick to equip the bride to be ready. So when we decide who will be the bridesmaids for the church, who will equip the church, through pedigree, through reputation, through degrees, through succession, through election, I'm saying to you that it is, it, it is, it is just the exactly opposite way of going about it, folks. Any questions thus far? We have a solution, but any questions with regard to what we've said thus far? How would we know who the right people are? We'll come to that. Any questions? Okay. The Bible says that the way a church should go about setting itself up is to be autonomous. Is to be autonomous. By autonomous, I mean it should be self-governing. It should be self Governing, self-sustaining, self-propagating. A church should be self-governing, meaning, I mean to begin with, I met a person recently who, uh, I was sitting across and the person said, Oh, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, start a church. And I didn't have the courage to say to him that, are you sure that's what God is calling you to do? Are you sure that's what your um, gifts or uh, ability to equip is? Because as far as I know, that's not what the person is supposed to do. But the person who's sitting there and does not have a job at present and said, I think I'll start a church. And I'm saying to you, that's usually not the way to go about it. If you if you are an equipper, you will know it even before anyone else identifies it, folks. If you are called to be a teacher, evangelist, pastor, prophet, or an apostle, I'm saying to you, before anyone else knows it, you have already known it because God clearly spoke to you. Not in a hazy dream where you saw a nose coming out and saying something. No, 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 no. Very clearly God will say, I have this for you. So you will know it. What do you do after that? You wait. 
Why? Because you are now appointed to the body of Christ. The body of Christ has at some point to see that in you, to recognize and at some point release you to do what you're supposed to do. You have to wait for it to happen. Jesus waited how long? 30 years. Go ahead, Matt. Self-imagined. But then he should wait till the church actually sees it. Yeah. If the body doesn't see it, if others don't come to recognize it, then there's something wrong. Because it is impossible once God has birthed that in you and put that in your DNA for it to be stayed hidden. It'll come out, folks. It'll surely come out. The outside church meaning? No, no. No, it is... No. This is one thing. If God has called you to any of these servant um, roles, you will know it before anyone else, folks. You will know it. You will know it first. It won't be the other way around. God won't come and use someone to say, I have. No, no, no. God would have spoken to you first because these are Christ-appointed things. The Bible doesn't say the Holy Spirit appoints these five services. He says... Christ has appointed these five services. You will know it. The way to, the way we should build is to be self-governing, self-sustaining and self-propagating. What I mean by self-sustaining is, you know one of the reasons we uh, uh, said to the North American Baptist Conference that uh, we would like to discontinue the uh, money that you were giving us to do the church plan was exactly because of this because we wanted to be self sustaining self propagating is giving birth self governing is where from within the house you now get a plurality of leaders you don't get a plurality of leadership you get a plurality of leaders an autonomous church is a self-governing church, self-sustaining church, self-propagating church. And you develop a plurality of leaders, but you don't develop a plurality of leadership. Meaning, it's not, because then it goes back to all the elders sitting together and uh, trying to arrive at a consensus. I, I, I've known of situations like that, where five, six elders will sit together and they won't make a decision till all of them are agreed. That's the way of, that's not the way. I'll show you from the Bible that that's not the way. Some of us must be thinking, but how does this affect my life? Folks, it affects our lives like crazy. Because once you become part of, once you become part of this, every, the way this loaf comes together determines what filters into each life. And we'll talk about that. See, when you go to Acts chapter 15, for example, they had a problem. The Gentiles were beginning to enter the church. And the Jewish church in Jerusalem had a problem. So they come for a huge discussion. Peter also turns up for the discussion because Peter had just had this amazing thing that happened at Cornelius' house where the Gentiles started speaking in tongues and received the Holy Spirit. And you will notice that all the elders and the whole church actually turned up for this meeting. And they were having debates, discussions on this whole topic of if the Gentiles come into the church, shouldn't we circumcise them? That was the discussion. And then 
Peter, who is a leader and one of the prime leaders among the apostles, what does he do? He stands up and gives, shares his testimony. But Peter was a leader of the apostles, but he wasn't the leader of the Jerusalem church. Even when he came to the Jerusalem church, he wasn't the one who was going to make the decision. There were elders, the elders were discussing too, if you read Acts 15. And then at one point, James stands up. And James was the leader of the Jerusalem church. And then James says, based on the principle that God is restoring the tabernacle of David. He, this goes back to what we were saying last week, folks. We do not have policies. We have principles. And those principles have to be derived from the word. And James listens to the whole discussion, listens to what Peter has to say. And then he stands up and says, based on the scripture in Psalms or somewhere where it says, I will restore the tabernacle of David and my salvation shall reach to the ends of the earth. I want to say now that the Gentiles will not have to go through circumcision. And then he states what has to be done. That's the way a church is supposed to work. We can all discuss but at the end of the day both the church and the leader has to give room to the voice of the Holy Spirit and you got to step back it doesn't matter what my opinion is it doesn't matter in a sense what your opinion is you have to step back and give place to the voice of the Holy Spirit I'd suggest to you the same principle applies to your homes get this right in the beginning when you have children and you'll find that just as it works in this house it'll work in your home Where husband and wife are co-equal, but the husband is first among the equals, folks. And at the end of the day, after the children have discussed and the wife and the husband have discussed, the husband has to have the ability to step back and speak for God and make room for the voice of the Holy Spirit for the home. And the same principle applies to the house. These are scriptural principles, not policies. It's not a policy. I'm the husband and what I say is right. Doesn't work that way. I love in verse 16 and 17 of Acts 15, you should read the wording. James sends a letter saying, it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. That's how he words the letter. It seems good to us and the Holy Spirit. Because you've got to step back and let the voice, make room for the voice of the Spirit. Hearing the Holy Spirit is the privilege of the community, meaning us. Hearing the Holy Spirit is the privilege of the community. A leader should take advice from others, but ultimately make room for the voice of God. A leader should take advice. Why, um, take advice from the community but ultimately should make room for the voice of God that's the way it's supposed to work and that's how we've been doing things I'd like to suggest to you when it came time to move from Viva Java to here that's what happened the Holy Sp- I mean um, you know Tino and I were sitting with Artie on Thursday and Artie was saying, so why did you guys move? Why did you leave me here like this and move? And I was glad Tino was there because it was a witness. And I said, Artie, this is what God did. And I told him how the Lord spoke. And I said to him, we were happy here. We hadn't outgrown this place. I love the smell of coffee. Um, liked everything about this place. 
But at the end of the day, we had to make room for the voice of the Spirit. It's the same with um, dollars that we give speakers who are coming. We don't sit and try to figure out, so is this guy really worth it or not? It is amazing how some of you have been at those meetings. We decide on a figure almost unanimously because the Spirit of God says, how about this? And uh, we won't even talk. And then when we speak out that figure, it's usually the it's usually the same. Same. You make room for the voice of the Spirit. There is a plurality of leaders, but there's no plurality of leadership. There is one set man, and we're going to talk about the set man principle next. That's why I said this is better preaching than someone else preaching, because <laughs> otherwise it seems self-promoting, but it's not. Set man principle. If you want to um, go to the next bit. Folks, every house is to have a set man. And the whole idea of set man comes from Numbers 27. Numbers 27. To think that God put Aaron's staff in the tabernacle to, to, to let churches know that there is a way to do things. Set man principle. Every house is had is to have a set man. The set man concept is from Numbers 27 verses 16 and 17. Numbers 27 verses 16 and 17. And here's what it says. Numbers 27 verses 16 and 17. Moses said to the Lord, May the Lord God, may the Lord the God of the spirits of all mankind appoint a man over this community to go out and come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in so the Lord's people will not be like a sheep without a shepherd. That's where the concept of set man comes from. May the Lord, the God of the spirits of all mankind, appoint a man over this community to go out and come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in, so Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. Our usual response to stuff like that is, oh, we, we follow Jesus Christ, we don't follow man. I'd like to say to you, that order here on earth is established through the agency of man. It's always established to the agency of man. So what are the qualifications of a set man? Does he have to be an apostle? Does he have to be a prophet? Does he have to be a pastor, teacher, evangelist? No, no, no. You have to be like David. You don't need to be a title. You have to be like David. You have to be a man or a woman running after God's heart. You have to be a hearer of God. You have to be someone whose hands are skilled in war and you have the ability, if necessary, to kill giants. You have to have a desire to build a house for God. You have to have spiritual authority. You have to be anointed by Samuel. And what I mean by anointed by Samuel means the 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 the, des- the purpose of God in your life to do that must be evident and must be recognized. Questions, guys? Questions? No questions? Any comments?
guys, don't feel scared to ask questions. This is how we build principles. Okay. Folks, a set man is a father. And it's a father that produces sons. A hireling cannot produce sons. A set man is a father. And it's a father who produces sons. A hireling cannot produce sons. You know, you can hire a pastor who has the heart of a father. Unfortunately, because he has been hired, he will not be allowed to produce children because he is hired and so he can be fired. So you cannot... He doesn't have the freedom. He may be a potent man. But he does not now have the freedom to produce children because he has been hired by someone who decides whether he is to stay with the bride or not. A father produces children. A hireling does not. If you turn to Judges 17, you'll see that story there. It's a very sad story. Judges 17. Judges is... Uh, Joshua after Joshua. Joshua judges Ruth. Judges 17. Hey folks, if it's getting late, just imagine this in your mind. You don't have to come this evening. Thank God we are talking about not deciding things democratically, but making room. <laughs> okay. Yeah, tug of war, uh, if you show, yeah, if it's in scripture, we'll do it that way. <laughs> okay, uh, Judges 17, 10. Uh, here is a guy called Micah, and he, this was a time when there were no prophets uh, and judges in Israel, and he meets a Levite, and Micah says in verse 9, where are you from? He says, I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and he says, I'm looking for a place to stay. Look at verse 10, then Micah said to him, live with me and be my father and priest, and I will give you ten shekels of silver a year, your clothes and your food. Hired him to be his priest and father. But now go to um, 18... Chapter 18, verse 19. Chapter 18, verse 19. Or verse 18. Chapter 18, verse 18. Judges chapter 18, verse 18. And it says there, When these men went into Micah's house, the same guy who hired this Levite to be his priest and father, and took the carved image, the ephod, and the other household gods, and the cast title, the priest said to them, What are you doing? They answered him, Be quiet, don't say a word, come with us, and be our father and priest. Isn't it better that you serve a tribe and a clan in Israel as a priest rather than just one man's household? Isn't this exactly what is happening, folks? What does it say? Yeah, the priest was glad. He took the ephod, the other household gods and carved image, went along with the people. This is unfortunately what's happening. It's happening to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of youth pastors. Who are men with a passion for God. But who need to break into a church. So that they can serve. And then move on to a tribe and a clan that is. Bigger. 
It's a sad thing, folks. And these are men and women of great passion. Do you see why we need to reform things? Otherwise, we end up in a system that is not... If you held a plumb line to it, it would be off. And there will be times when we may be off, but may God send us people or send us the word so that we may hold it against us and then have the meekness to correct ourselves. So folks, make sure that you connect to a set man whose staff or rod is blossoming. Make sure, this is where we talk about why it is important, how, how does this all help me as an individual in the church? Make sure that you connect to a set man whose rod is blossoming because only then will the full purpose and grace of God placed in that house through the set man be yours. Let me say that again. It is important that I connect to a set man whose rod is blossoming and we'll talk about what that means. Because only when I connect to a set man of that sort will all the purposes of God and all the graces of God through that set man for the house become mine. Numbers 17 verse 12. God, I think it's in Numbers 17 verse 12 or Numbers 11 verse 17. God says to Moses, I'm going to take the spirit that is off you and I'm going to put it on these 70. It's not because the set man suddenly becomes special. It is just that the God has ordained order in such a way that when you connect to a set man whose rod is blossoming, then all the purposes of God for that house will flow through into your lives. Numbers 11, 17 and Numbers 17, 12. I think it's on top of the sheet. 17, 12. Let's go check it out. Numbers 17, 12 says... No, must be wrong. Numbers, Try Numbers 11, 17. Numbers 11, 17. 17, 12 is not the right verse. Numbers 11, 17. Yeah. Numbers 11, 17. Um... I will, God is speaking. He says, I will come down and speak with you there and I will take off the spirit that is upon you and put the spirit on them. They will help you carry the burden of the people so that you will not have to carry it alone. What's happening is some elders had come and Moses needed help and God took that grace that was upon Moses and put it upon the 70 so that they may have the same grace to judge properly. This is why when Jacob blessed his children, he didn't say, son Ryan, you will be this. No, he said, Run, son Ryan, you and your descendants will be P 